Thank you for joining us today for the preaching ministry of Dr. Chris Aiken, Senior Pastor of Inglewood Baptist Church in Rocky Mount, North Carolina. Inglewood is a dynamic ministry reaching Eastern North Carolina and the world with the timeless truth of the gospel. For more information, visit us online at inglewoodbaptist.com. Now here's Pastor Chris with today's message. Good morning again. I'm glad to see you. If you brought a copy of the scriptures, would you open with me to the gospel of John in chapter one, John chapter one, we're going to continue in this series I introduced several weeks back entitled simply come and see. And we're talking about how the Lord went about the process of bringing hope to the hopeless, bringing healing to brokenness, bringing uh, promise to those who were despondent. And uh, we're, we're talking about the subject of evangelism. We're talking about how we communicate the good news and looking to Jesus to understand among Jesus and among his earliest disciples, the process, the right way, the, the preferred way, the effective way of seeing the good news communicated. And hey, if you'd like to follow along, I've got an outline that's available to you. I want to show you three observations on the message, answers that promote faith and offer promise. Answers that promote faith and offer promise. And that outline's available to you on the church app. If you have that, easiest way for you to do is just open your app, go to sermon notes, and you can click on it there and you'll have that outline available. Or you could, if you don't have the app, you could text the word notes to the number that you see on the screen. And uh, we'll send you a link and you'll have it right to your device. Or honestly, it's a pretty simple outline. You might just want to flip over that worship folder you received on the way in and just jot down the, the, the scripture references and stuff so that you'll have that and you can refer back to it later this week perhaps as uh, you're examining the message. Now, first thing I want you to notice with me is what we see here in the text. In the process of gospeling, questions will arise. In the process, in that act of, in that uh, that, that practice of, of gospeling, of communicating the gospel, of sharing good news, of, of uh, sharing about Jesus, of connecting the dots. In the process of gospeling, questions will arise. Here's the truth. If you're sharing your faith, then you're already also hearing questions about it. If you're sharing your faith, you're hearing questions about it. Why? Because it's weird. I mean, to a, a world without Jesus, the claims of Christ are kind of strange, aren't they? Uh, To a world that doesn't know Jesus, the thought that a man who lived 2,000 years ago and died, that he rose again, and that somehow that's going to be an encouragement, that's going to promote questions. Honest people, earnest people would have questions about that. They would go, that seems weird. I've never known any dead people that weren't dead anymore. And then they would be, this is odd. Well, I've got, how does that work? How does Jesus take and, uh, and, and bring comfort to brokenheartedness? How does, he, how does he offer me hope in the midst of my world? That questions would arise. If you're sharing the gospel, you're hearing questions. If you're not hearing questions, maybe there aren't as many experiences of sharing the gospel. You say, well, I haven't answered a question in years. Hey, I can tell you this, I didn't catch any fish yesterday. Not one, not one fish did I catch yesterday. Now I didn't go fishing and that shouldn't have anything to do with the story of course, but uh, I just want you to know I didn't catch any. The reason I didn't catch any, I didn't go fishing. I saw on Facebook some other people went fishing, caught fish, nice fish. I didn't catch any fish. I didn't catch any fish because I weren't fishing. If you're not getting any stories, might not be gospeling. 
we might think we're gospel and we might say, well, I said, God bless you to the cashier. Well, praise the Lord for that. But maybe they didn't generate any questions because you didn't do anything weird enough for them to like it or want to ask you a question or challenge their position somewhere. See, the fact of the matter is if we're communicating the gospel with people, questions will arise. Now, here's what's true. You and I don't have a job of bringing people to Jesus necessarily. We have a job perhaps of inviting them to Jesus, but it's Jesus who draws people to himself. Notice that's the way it happened in the story. John 1, verse 43, the next day, he, Jesus, purposed to go into Galilee, and he, Jesus, found Philip. And Jesus said to him, follow me. Now, that's typical. That's normal. Every single genuine believer was invited to follow by Jesus himself. Say it again. Every single genuine believer was invited to follow by Jesus himself. Every single genuine believer was invited to follow by Jesus himself. If you're a follower of Jesus, you got there because Jesus invited you to follow. You didn't get there on your own. You didn't wake up one morning and go, I'm tired of the cartoons. Think I'll follow Jesus today. That didn't happen to you. Jesus somehow, some way, in some means or fashion stirred your heart for something that you didn't have that was not characteristic of you and drew you to him. God himself is in that process of drawing us to Christ. Jesus said you can't get to the Father except through him. John 14 verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And the Father is busy about drawing us to Jesus. Jesus said, John 6, verse 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. I'll raise him up on the last day. No one comes to Christ. No one comes to the Father apart from the work of God himself and drawing people. You and I, if we look around at a lost world, it's not because we don't do our job. It's because God hasn't drawn or they've not responded to God. But sometimes we need to understand God uses us as part of the drawing. In fact, it's by design. It's built into the Christian job description, if you will, that we are, in fact, reconcilers who bring people together with God. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 to 20. Now, all these things, Paul writes to the church at Corinth, now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. God does the reconciling. And he gave us the ministry of reconciliation, the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he's committed to us the word of reconciliation. So we have a ministry of reconciliation, which apparently we engage in through a word of reconciliation. Therefore, verse 20 says, we're ambassadors for Christ as though God, we're making an appeal through us. We beg you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. God is the one who invites. The Lord himself is the one who challenges us, charges us, commissions us, calls us to follow after him. But oftentimes he'll use us in that process of the way he extends that invitation. John 1, verse 43 again. The next day, Jesus purposed to go into Galilee, and he found Philip. And Jesus said to him, follow me. Notice also verse 45. And Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth. 
the son of Joseph. Now that word found, I illustrated that for, for a particular reason. I want you to catch it. That word found, matter of fact, if, you, if you're not like spiritually opposed to making notes in your Bible and you have a paper Bible, you might want to circle those words found there. If you look at that on an app, you might just highlight it because you don't want to miss this. That's an important word in this process. It's the, it's the Greek word everisko, and it, it can have two meanings. It could mean to search for something diligently. Like remember when, uh, when the shepherd left the 99 and went to search for the one and he found him. Or when the woman who had lost a coin uh, searched all through her house until she found it. It could be an intentional seeking after kind of process. Or it could mean to happen upon something. By the way, that's the way it's used here. As, uh, as Jesus was going into Galilee, he happened upon Philip. And he invited Philip to come. And as Philip was going, he happened upon Nathaniel. And he invited him to come. This isn't a Tuesday night visitation program. It's not an organized church outreach. Like, well, we're going to gather together and we're going to go out and hunt people. That would be, wouldn't you hate to be hunted? I know a few fellas that could arrange this if you're, if you're like, oh, I think that'd be fun to try. I'd, I know a couple guys that could do it, but I, I would hate to be hunted, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you hate to know that some guy was out hunting you, looking for you in the dead of night? That'd be scary, weird. Y'all are stiff today. I'm looking for some reaction from you. That's how you get out of here before one, by the way. You respond, dialogue, okay? That's how that works. So, it, I don't want to be hunted, but here's what he said. As they were going about, as you go, make disciples. As they're going, they happened upon, Jesus happened upon Philip. Philip happened upon Nathaniel. There's some kind of process of communicating that was taking place as they just happened to be where they happened to be. As Jesus was going about, he found Philip. Nathaniel was found the same way as they were going. Now, I don't know all the details about this, but the scripture does tell us that Andrew and Peter and Philip and Nathaniel were all from the same hometown. Maybe they went to high school together. Maybe they were in the, the same hunting club or fishing club together. Maybe they're all in Bassmasters of Bethsaida together. I don't know, I don't know where they, but all I know is, is that they kinda knew each other and there's things of God that was somewhere on their radar somehow because when they saw one another, they found them and began to talk about God. So they had to know there was some kind of a desire or need. And by the way, as you're gospeling about who God is, what God's done, what he's done in your life, you'll find needs that'll surface or you'll find interest that'll rise to the top. And as you're going about and you show up at Walmart in Bethsaida and you see someone, you go, hey, I found the one we were talking about the other day, the one Moses and the prophet said, you should come and see. And that's the process of gospeling that we see here. Now, here's what's also true. In the process of gospeling, a question arises. Look at verse 46. Nathanael said to him, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, come and see. Now what, to try to get into a, a character in the Bible to get into their heads, a, a difficult process. I have trouble sorting through the voices in my own head. Okay, but here's what's, with Nathaniel, this process that's going on, there must have been something 
that was taking place in his mind that was of a spiritual nature, some knowledge that Nathaniel would have had. Because he's probably drawing on maybe his primary school or his, his, his training at Hebrew school. We call, it, we call it Sunday school. It would have been Saturday school for him. But maybe in his Saturday school training at Temple where he had learned about God and he had learned about where to expect the Messiah from, where he learned about those things. And now he's heard that, that the Messiah is from Nazareth. And he says, wait a minute, can any good thing come from Nazareth? It could have been that he was just kind of, he was throwing a little shade at people from Nazareth. But kind of like when people from Easley, where I'm from, talk about people from Pickens, where people from Pickens are from. It's that town next to, by the way, the former pastor here was from Pickens. So my team was better than his team in everything we did, because my city was superior to his city in everything we did. And he would say, no, that's not true. We were superior to you. It could have been he was throwing some shade at Nazareth and go, can any good thing come from Pickens? I mean, it could have been like that, but in either respect, what's going on here? He's asking a question. Now, whether it's a logical question or a reasonable question or a well-founded question or a rational question or not, we don't know. What we do know, though, is it is a question, and questions are essential to the way we operate. You know, people ask questions, you don't even have to prime them for it. You ever been walking around with a two- or three-year-old, and they look around and say, Daddy, why is the sky blue? Why, is a, why does a bird land on that tree limb? Why is Clemson a superior football team? I mean, there's all kinds of questions the world has of things that should be obvious. And questions don't mean they're trying to trap or trick. By the way, it's getting closer to football season, can you tell? Of course you can't. You're waiting on basketball season, and who cares? But anyway, so... What I'm saying to you is there's, there's, these, there's these, uh, this desire to want to know why things work the way they work. That's just natural. It's not a trick. It's not a trap. It's just, it's curiosity. In fact, it's a need to know something. You wouldn't look at that little three-year-old that says, why is the sky blue? And you go, just, just accept the fact that it's blue. You know, sometimes Christians will answer questions people have just that way. Well, why did Jesus die? He just did. I heard about it in church. Well, excuse me for living. And they'll just move on. That'd be a terrible way to answer a question. Or to give them some overly complicated answer like, well, actually, the sky's not blue. It's the way the prism of light is broken up over particles in the atmosphere that makes it appear blue. I'd be like, can we have Pop-Tarts when we get home? I mean, that's the next question. That's not a nerdy answer. It's not a dismissive answer. Because... The question isn't bad. It's just a question. It's part of the nature. People ask questions. Questions are natural. But friend, answers are supernatural. Questions demonstrate interest. Answers build faith. While questions naturally arise in all of life. So if that's true, it happens about our faith as well. So how and where do we find the best answers to those questions? Notice secondly, that the best answers to questions are found in Jesus himself. The best answers to questions are found in Jesus himself. Jesus is the best answer provider for all questions. John 1 verse 46 again. Nathanael said to him, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? And Philip said, well, sure. I was Googling it just the other day and it told me that, uh, that one time a Nobel Peace Prize winner came out of Nazareth. That's not what he said. He said, yep, 
Come and see. Come and see. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Come and see. He was taking him to Jesus. He wasn't trying to win him by logic or reason or rationale or or an overwhelming response of apologetics to all the facts that he could muster up. He simply said, come and see. Now that answer seems simplistic, but it's profound. He said, let's go see Jesus. Notice what he didn't do. He didn't say, but I was reading this book the other day that's on the newest Christian bestseller list. He didn't say, man, you got to read what Francis Chan said. He didn't say, oh, Oswald Chambers gave me a great word in a devotional. He didn't say those things. He didn't hand him a new encyclopedia or a new insight from some. He didn't also point to his pastor's YouTube channel and say, but you, what you really need is a sermon from my pastor because he helped me see, see the answer. He didn't do that. You say, well, maybe Jesus didn't have a YouTube channel. Touche. But he didn't point to his pastor's teaching. He didn't point to some rabbi somewhere. He simply said, come and see. This, he didn't point to this new idea he read about on social media. Like he was cruising Reddit one day and he learned about this new concept that he had never thought of before. And now he thinks the whole world's wired around that. He didn't point to any of those things. He simply said, come and see. Why didn't he do those things? Because all of those things lack the necessary authority to satisfy the questions. See, we like to think that we can be clever and satisfy people's curiosity. But really, it's only Jesus that can satisfy questions about Jesus. Only Jesus can do that. Well, how do we get to Jesus? That's a good question because he's not sitting in the square somewhere or camped out in Bethsaida somewhere where we could just head off to the mountaintop and find the guru and talk to him. But what we can do is take him to the most reliable source we have on him, and that's the Word of God. The Word of God. If we could take people and get them to the Word of God, then we're going to find that they're going to hear from Jesus. See, now, now, let me just say this. If you're 50 or older, you've grown up most all of your life believing this is actually God's Word and with it carrying some sort of authority with that. You've probably accepted it, even people that hate God. I found that attribute some authority to the Word. I could say, but the Bible says, and they didn't sit there and go, who cares about a Bible? You know, it's written by men. They didn't do that. They said, yeah, but I don't. I don't trust that or I don't believe that. or whatever. They knew there's some authority there. That was a reality for them. Can I just say to you that in the generation which we live that's coming through today, they don't start with that same presupposition. They, they don't begin there. So sometimes we can't start there and say, but the Bible says, because they go, huh? The what? I've never seen a Bible. My parents never showed me one. I never went to Saturday school or Sunday school or Thursday school for that matter. I haven't been to any school. I don't know anything about your Bible. So we may have some work to do, but the fact of the matter is, if they're ever to hear of Jesus, we've got to get them to the Word of God. Why? It has authority and power. Jot down Hebrews 4 verse 12. The writer of Hebrews says, the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces as far as division of soul and spirit, of both joint and marrow, and is able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. It has the ability, the writer of Hebrews tells us, it has the ability to look underneath the hood and even tell our actions from the motive behind our actions. Now, what can do that reliably in the world? See, you can watch what people do, but you can't always tell why they did it. 
The Bible says that God through His Word can take and pierce in such a way that He can even draw a distinction between motives and actions, motives and intentions. He can, he can find that place. None of us can do that. We don't have that ability within us, but God can do it through His Word. And the Bible itself is sufficient to help us understand who God is. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 says, All Scripture is inspired by God, and therefore it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. The man of God? Yeah, the one who is pointing people to God, who's pointing to people to the things of God. That's what, hey, that's the same thing we do anytime we gospel. So what's adequate for teaching, for training, for reproof, for correction, and, and uh, for, for building up in righteousness, for hope, for help? What's, a, what's sufficient for that? The only claim the Bible makes is that the Bible itself is Scripture. Not a pastor, not, uh, not a Christian hero, but the Word of God itself. Until folks can be in, encounter that, they'll not know the things of God that He's revealed about Himself. In fact, they'll not even know the person of God. Because the Bible is the way for them to meet Jesus. But can we just be honest for a second and say that it's not usually our first course of action to take them to the Bible? Probably two reasons for that. One of those has to do with our nature. Part of us wants to be the smart person in the conversation. What's broken in your marriage? Well, let me tell you, in my 612 years of experience of marriage, here's what I found, and we want to wax eloquent about that. But you know, the secret to a successful marriage isn't found just in the experience. You might experience it that way, but the secret to a successful marriage is found in the Word of God, the one who made marriage. Here's what, here's what God said. Jody and I celebrated 34 years together yesterday. And uh, I hope she keeps me for another 34 and change. Lots and lots of change. Anyway, here's a secret to a healthy marriage. Die. Now, some of you are thinking, I can help her with that. No, you can't either. That's not, we're not talking about that kind of dying. Here's what we are talking about. Dying to self and self-interest and self-promotion and self-aggrandizement. This desire to want me to be in charge and to be on top of things, to give of myself, to serve, even as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And in the same way for her toward me, to be yielded. And you say, oh, that's, man, I'm telling you, Dr. Phil would never say anything like that. That's right, you won't pack a studio with that kind of story. You only pack a studio with the latest pop psychology. But you know, God's Word has the answer for this thing God designed. God's Word has the answer for human flourishing in ways that no one else can actually help you with. I want to know, I want to know how to experience happiness. It must be in having more stuff. If so, why did one of the richest men of the 1800s and early 1900s, J. Paul Getty, when asked how much money is enough, richest man in the world at his time, how much money is enough? He said, just a little more. Why did he say that if money would actually solve it? He said it because that's all he knew. But can I tell you, Jesus said, in this world you'll have 
troubles, tribulation, trials to overcome, pressures, but take courage, I've overcome the world. Find your peace in me. Man, the Bible's replete with everything that we desire and need, but sometimes we don't want to point people to that because we want to be the hero kind of of the story. The other reason is, is we might not, well, let's just say we, we don't know it, it's even in the Bible or where it is in the Bible, or we don't have the confidence to point to it in the Bible. One of the most common phrases, I'm, if you've ever said this to me, I'm not thinking about you, but one of the most common phrases people will say to me is they'll say, man, I, I read that somewhere. I mean, I know it's in there. Yeah, it's right beside the verse that says cleanliness is next to godliness in Second Opinions chapter 3. Right there, that's where you'll find it. That's, that's exactly where it is. The fa- it, hey, listen, it makes us feel weak to be able to try to point to something and not know where we found it. But shouldn't it? How many of you, if, you're, if your spleen was messed up, would go to a doctor and said, oh, man, I... Went to doctoring school and learned how to take out spleens. Come on over here. Let's get ready to the procedure. I'm going to open your belly up. Nurse, that's, that's in there somewhere, right? I mean, that spleen thing's inside there. I'd be like, excuse me, check please. I'm out the door. If you don't know where the spleen is, I sure don't want you cutting on me trying to find it. Well, I'm sure it's in there somewhere. I mean, I was kind of paying attention in anatomy class. <laughs> no, thank you. I want to know that you know exactly where it is and you can go get it. And you can keep it from squirting out. Or, and I'm sorry, that's disgusting. But I, that, you don't, that you're not going to let it hurt me when you do it. Wouldn't you want someone with that same kind of background pointing you to this thing that's supposed to be the only hope for all the world? Do you know that's why, that's why I give you Bible verses and Scripture references? So that when you walk away, you can go... I know it says somewhere in there the scripture's true. Where? Right there in 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17. All scripture given by God. By the way, given by God, it's theonoustos, God breathed. It's inspired by God. Therefore, it's profitable for correction, rebuke. It's for all of those things. I want you to be able to point to that. Why? Because that's where the authority comes from behind it. Well, sometimes we don't point to the scripture because we don't know where it is. Sometimes we want to be the hero of the story, but the fact of the matter is the answer is to point them to Jesus, and we find Jesus in the Scriptures. Notice with me verses 47 and 48. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him, and he said of him, Behold an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? I follow your Facebook page. No, that's not what he says. Jesus answered and said, Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Notice that Nathaniel asked the second question. He says, not, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? He says, how do you know me? Jesus said, I saw you under the fig tree. Now, scholars have played with this a couple of different ways. And there's basically two lines of thought. One is that this is a metaphor. That there's not an actual fig tree. And he didn't actually see him under it. But he knew him when he was sitting under the teaching of Rabbi Fluffyhead who was laying out these ideas to him and that is just metaphorical. You should just take it that way. That's not how I see it. The other school of thought is that you take it literally, that Jesus saw him sitting under a fig tree before he was invited to come and see. 
To me, that's not that big of a deal. Is it to you? It shouldn't be that big of a deal. If Jesus can rise from the dead, he ought to be able to see someone somewhere when somebody didn't see him seeing them. That ought, to be, that ought to be doable. That ought to be in the neighborhood. If Jesus can rise from the dead, what exactly exceeds his ability? If Jesus could get up from the dead, what exactly is too far of a stretch for us to hang our hat on of being able to believe in? Nathaniel says, how do you know me? He said, I saw you under the fig tree. Now, apparently what he said was important, but catch this. That's not that far of a stretch. Sometimes you'll point people to things in the scripture and you won't be able to explain them necessarily, but Jesus explains them quite well. You and I might not be able to explain how Jesus saw him in another place at another time before he knew he saw him. But Jesus said, I seen you. Excuse me, that was bad grammar. I saw you right there under the fig tree just before he saw you wearing your Air Jordans and that pink shirt that you have that's kind of weird. But I saw you just like that. that. Jesus told him those things and it convinced him, by the way. He was convinced. Notice the answer Jesus gave is more than the question Nathaniel asked and it was personal in his response. I saw you under that fig tree before he came to you. It was a personally applied to him. So here's a statement. Jesus always answers with precisely what we need to respond in faith. Jesus always answers with precisely what we need to respond in faith. Jesus always answers with precisely what we need to respond in faith. Notice I didn't say Jesus answers with what we want. Sometimes we'll ask God for stuff we want and Jesus doesn't answer us that way. And we'll go, but I was, I was looking for this answer. Yeah, I know, but uh, this is what you need. Well, that's not what I was looking for. So in fact, sometimes we'll assume we haven't heard from God because he didn't respond the way we thought he ought to. The fact of the matter is he always responds with precisely what we need in order to respond in faith. Hey, here's a question. Do you know the scripture well enough to have a conversation with someone? You say, why? Well, Pretty good. Do you know what you believe? And do you know why? See, there's this process that comes where we go from just taking some handed down theology from our parents or from a pastor or from some tradition to where we've studied it, understand it for ourselves so that it's ours. If, it did, if we don't make that transition to it being ours, here's the, here's the answer. Jesus died for your sin. How do you know? Well, because I believe it. Why do you believe it? Well, Chris said it. Who's Chris? Nobody important, I guess. <laughs> do you know that if you never make the transition to why it's yours, you become pretty easy prey for somebody to come by and undermine what it is you think you know. Did you know that the number one recruiting ground for those of the false traditions of Jehovah's Witnesses, the number one recruiting ground for them are a bunch of Baptists? The largest number of their converts come from Baptists. Why is that? Because somebody said, Jesus, God in the Bible, and my preacher said it, and we've always thought it, and that's the way it is. Yeah, but why do you believe that? 
Can you point to something? Have you researched it? That's why the scriptures, that's why the outlines, that's why all that stuff. So that we can sit down and go, okay, well, if this is true and this is true and this is true, then that must be true. And because that's true and because I've seen him and I've met him and I've experienced him, I know it to be true. You don't have to worry about that person getting rattled when some guy comes along and says, I know, I know, I know, you got a book, but I got one that showed up 1800 years later. It's just written to us. And you could go, that's weird. Next. Are you following me? That's the idea that's here. So when we're gospeling, questions arise. And the best answer to the questions are found in Jesus from the scriptures. Why? Because number three, in the answer is the proof and the promise of a faithful response. In the answer is both proof and promise of faithful response. In the way Jesus answers, he provides both proof of the response and promise in the response. Look at verse 49. Nathanael said to him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You're the king of Israel. Wait a minute. Isn't this the same dude who said, how'd you see me? How do you know my name? Jesus gives him one response and he says, you're the rabbi, you're the king pretty powerful answer don't you think what was it that converted his mind Jesus's answer some of you have been wrestling with people trying to convince them of stuff in your own power and you're wondering why won't they ever believe well I've told them the gospel 6,217 times I've spelled Jesus out to them I've explained it over and over they won't seem to get it yeah but maybe you're answering it And maybe it's time for Jesus to answer it. Because Jesus said to this old boy, who didn't even think anything good could come out of pickets, I mean Nazareth. When you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And he said, you're the king of the universe. You're the Messiah. You're the one we've been looking for. The doubter is now a believer because Jesus spoke into his life. Notice what else. Look at verse 50. Jesus answered and said to him, because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You'll see greater things than these. Notice the promise in that. And the proof. The proof, because I told you this, that's the proof, you believe? You will see greater things, that's the promise. He says, because you believed, you're going to see even greater things, both proof and promise in the answer that Jesus brings. What you will see in here is far superior to what you've already seen and heard. Jesus provided proof that was sufficient to change his mind. But did you notice he didn't answer the question that Nathanael asked, but gave him rather what he needed? And then in verse 51, he illuminates this promise so that he could see it even more clearly. Verse 51, he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you'll see the heavens opened and the angels of God descending or ascending and descending on the Son of Man. He says, you will see. Promise. Angels. Think of, uh, don't think of those cute little cherubim that come out in your Christmas display for, the, uh, for, for, for your, your, your mantle. Think about ministering agents of God that, uh, that minister before the throne of God all day long, that, uh, that carry out the orders of God, that are dispatched from the throne of God to the, to, to the mission of God as he calls them to be. And he says, if, you, if you'll pay attention to this, you'll see... The angels of God, the messengers of God, the agents of God ascending and descending from the throne of God on the Son of Man. 
Now the picture is an allusion to Jacob's ladder. It was a vision that Jacob had seen. If you want that reference, you could jot it down. Genesis 28, it begins in verse 10, goes through verse 16. And uh, that's a story in Genesis where Jacob has a dream of a ladder that extends from heaven to where he stood. And there's a promise of blessing there. And there's a promise of protection there. And there's a promise of restoration there. That even when you leave, I'll bring you back. Jacob saw this vision and it had been passed down from generation to generation to generation to generation to even Nathaniel. So when Jesus draws on that, he said, hey, that ladder, that ladder of promise, it's me. Look at verses 15 and 16 of Jacob's vision. Behold, I'm with you, God says to him. I'm with you and will keep you wherever you go and I'll bring you back to this land. For I'll not leave you until I've done what I've promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, surely the Lord is in this place. And I did not even know it. There was a covenant promise made Nathaniel's ancestors and holy God, and they clung to it. And Jesus said, that ladder's not a ladder, but the very son of God who stands before you. And you're going to see that because you've believed. It's a powerful picture. And to us, to you, I'd say today, The God of heaven wants to do immeasurably more than we could ever think or ask. He wants to do more in my life and in your life than we could even think to ask him. He loves you. He loves our city. He loves our people. He loves our nation. He loves all peoples. That's why we pray for peoples that have yet to even know his name. Because he loves them. And he desires for us to know him and to experience his promises. He says, whatever question you have, he's the answer. And he desires for people to know that, not just the people in this room, but the people's everywhere. You know, we close every service that we gather together in with a rehearsal of a statement from Jesus. It's recorded in John's gospel. And he says, for even as the father sent me, so in whatever way, that the Father sent the Son. For whatever purpose that the Father sent the Son, Jesus said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, to give His life a ransom for many. The Son of Man did not come looking for the well, but for the sick. The Son of Man came to minister and to meet needs. The Son of Man came to reveal the heart of the Father. Father, all things I've revealed to them, I've manifested your love, your heart, your glory to them. Jesus said, even as the Father sent me, so I'm sending you. He calls on us to be instruments just like that. As though on the Son of Man, we're bringing the promises of God and we're applying it to the lives of men by pointing them to the Son of God. He calls on us to do that. And you know, we live in crazy times with crazy stuff going on all around us and people struggling with so many different things. And Jesus said, in many ways, we're the instruments, the ambassadors, the bridge in those conversations by which they come to recognize Jesus' peace in answer to their anxiousness. Jesus' healing in response to their hurt. Jesus' comfort in response to their grief. Jesus' restoration in response to their shame. Jesus' repair in response to their brokenness. Jesus' promise in response to their despondency. 
God has a word for every person and for every person's problem. But they only know it if we point them to Jesus. Come and see. Can't get there on their own. And it's not good enough that there's a building somewhere near them that's got a steeple on it or church in the name. I need somebody to say, come and see. And he's called on us to be those people. And when they ask questions to not be put out, not be embarrassed, not be uh, intimidated, but to recognize that's interest and to engage and to not be the answer, but to take them to Jesus. Don't you think, don't you think Philip had heard enough the night before that he could have said something that would have assuaged Nathaniel's curiosity? And yet he didn't. He just said, come and see. Come and see. And you and I can do that as well. That begins when God does that in our hearts. See, if you're here today and you've never trusted him, his invitation to you is come and see. You've been pushing back. You've been aware from a distance. You've been familiar with, but you've never been yielded to. Do you want to know if I can be the one that really will do what I said I'd do? Come and see. And it requires not that you go to school and learn about him. Or that you figure out all the details or you understand how all the pieces are put together. It means you bring your honest, earnest yieldedness before him and say, Lord, show me. And he says, come and see. To accept that invitation. If you've never done that, you ought to do that today. And maybe you're listening and you'd say, you know, Chris, there was a time in my life where I did come and I did see. But in all honesty, and heard questions in a while. Because like you, I hadn't been fishing in a while. And if I'm going to fish, I'm going to catch fish. And if I'm going to gospel, I'm going to hear questions. And I'm going to commit to God today that is the only hope this crazy, messed up, weirdo world has. I'm going to tell them, come and see. Would you pray with me? Lord, I'm grateful. Grateful that your word is sufficient, that it endures, that it's powerful, that it knows us better than we would care to admit or even that we know ourselves. And Lord, you don't give up on us. And nothing happens by happenstance or circumstance. Now find our response to this moment that you created for the purpose that you could find our response worshipful as we simply obey. And friend, I mean what I say, whether you're in this room or in a living room somewhere, if you've never trusted him, please do that today. Thank you for joining us today. We hope this message has been a blessing. If today's message has prompted you to consider a next step with God, we would love to assist you. Simply drop by our website at inglewoodbaptist.com next or give us a call at 252-937-8254 and let us know how we can assist you. If today's message was an encouragement to you, let me encourage you to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you consume this content. That really helps us reach a wider audience with the life-changing hope of Jesus Christ. 
We hope you will join us next week. And until next time, may the Lord bless you.